Brewers with a big win late into the evening. It did get done before morning, though. Finished up at 11.55 p.m. Brewers get the win 4-1 to one over the San Diego Padres. How long did you last last night? Uh, do you want the honest answer or the show answer? Always the honest answer. Uh, so Corbin Burns is on my fantasy team, and I take a very significant interest in how he performs naturally. I lasted uh, in the first inning. He gave up a single and then another single, and they were first and third with no out, and I think that's when I fell asleep. That was really early. Yeah. That that was like at 8.50. Probably towards 9 o'clock, or that's when I turned my phone off. I was going to say, for a fantasy standpoint, if you have Corbin Burns, I, I'm wondering what you're thinking in the first inning. So, speaking of the game, Milwaukee, like I said, beats San Diego Padres 4-1. to one, But that first inning for Corbin Burns, wow, a lot of weak contact dropping in. What he had, uh, Jake Cronenworth beats the shift on a nice piece of hitting. And then after that, it was basically just an excuse me swing from a couple of guys that blooped in a couple hits. And all of a sudden, Corbin Burns has given up one run. Yeah, I mean, I guess the good news there is after five home runs in his last four games allowed, he allowed none. I mean, you know that he's dominant. So there are outliers where things like that happen. That's baseball, right? There's some pitchers that deal with bad luck all season. They, they pitch to soft contact. They miss bats. Then there are just a couple games where they make maybe one mistake after some BS hits and an error, and then the other team has six runs. That's how it works. But, I mean, he still bounced back, got the win. Still a wildly impressive performance. That's a really good Padres lineup. Not many. I don't think enough people are talking about Manny Machado and the level he's playing. Like He looks like the NL MVP right now. So you're saying he looks like the Manny Machado of like three, four years ago? Yeah, he hasn't, you see, he hasn't been that bad since he got to San Diego. Just hasn't been that good. By no means was he, because Bryce Harper and him obviously signed in the same offseason. Harper goes to Philly. Machado goes to San Diego. Harper obviously wins MVP last year, and you could see why, you know, the contract clearly looks worth it. It's like he is hitting at the near the top of baseball. Take away Mike Trout and Jose Ramirez and those guys. But Machado had been okay and then good in the field, but he hadn't broke out and had that vintage MVP type season. It looks like this is the one. Yeah, speaking of Corbin Burns, though, Corbin Burns finished six innings, gave up five hits, two walks, struck out five, didn't have his very best stuff, but he was pretty good again last night. You take away, I think he gave up about three blue pits. You take some of those little Texas leaguers away. There wasn't a ton of solid contact off of Burns. Burns looked pretty good. And then Holby Milner finished the seventh. Trevor Gott came in for the eighth in a higher leverage situation. And then Devin Williams closed the game. Man, does Devin Williams look good when he throws strikes? Yeah. Now that can be said about pretty much every single pitcher, but Devin Williams, once he starts throwing strikes, that changeup is even more nasty. Yeah. I mean, you could say that about any, any random man at a local bar. He, he, you know, it works pretty well when it's all clicking and, and the, uh, and the numbers get got, if you will, but you're right. I, when he is actually in the strike zone, which is pretty much his entire game. Like when he is there, he is unhittable. When he's not there, it's a complete disaster. So around, I'd say 935, 940, we kind of previewed last night's game. And we talked about how obviously Burns was going for the Brewers. 
Blake Schnell was going for the Padres, and the fact that the Milwaukee Brewers are in the bottom half of the league when it comes to hitting left-handed pitching. Now, they didn't necessarily hit the baseball very much last night, Ben, but they had some pretty big hits. And what I mean by that, Mike Brasso, he hit a home run. Now, we've been pretty tough on Brasso just because of how bad he has been filling in almost every day between third base and shortstop so far this season defensively. But I'll tell I'll, I'll say this. Mike Brasso, I think, is surprising people with how well he's actually swinging the bat because he's actually hitting and playing at a much higher level than he has over his entire career swinging the bat. Now, defensively, you could argue he's been worse, but he had a solo shot in the fifth inning to tie the game at one to one. And then in the sixth inning, Ben, our guy, my center fielder, Tyrone Taylor, with a three-run shot that broke the game open, making it 4-1. to one. Obviously, the Brewers would go on to hold on to that lead, win the game 4-1. to one. Yeah, the man I would not ask to bunt in the 10th inning if he came up with no outs and a man on second. But you mentioned Brasso. I don't know about the at-bat uh, threshold he would have to reach. He is leading the team in OPS and average. And while the sample size is tiny, it's worth noting he is hitting the ball well. But Tyrone Taylor, they had him hitting fourth which I, I don't know if that's a surprise at all. Like, I think I think for the lineup that was playing last night where you had McCutcheon leading off, obviously Willie Adamas is still out. There was no Rowdy Telez. And you're facing a lefty. Correct. I, I think it makes sense with the guys that they were playing. I mean, you look at who's behind him. You have Brasso. Hira was hitting sixth. Wong, seventh. Kane, eighth. And Victor Carantini, ninth. I think that makes sense. Maybe, maybe if this was a couple of years ago, you're switching Hira and Taylor. But I think with the lineup they played last night, I think that makes sense for them. The old Lorenzo Kane and Tyrone Taylor lineup. That's not one. So, I mean, it's very clear that they all listen to the show and understand when we talk about someone extensively on Monday. Actually, we talked about a couple people. One of them, we got horrible news yesterday but the other Tyrone Taylor talked about him and Lorenzo Cain extensively and how I mean at this point I I would rather not have a a turnstile at the plate I want a guy that can actually give something and I mean he shows flashes where he completely passes the eye test and that's the most arbitrary statement I could give on how I feel about a young hitter that doesn't play every day but when I see him at the plate it looks like he could be good does that make sense? Am I crazy for thinking that? I mean, I think Tyrone Taylor since last summer has shown you maybe not depends on how you define good, but can be a serviceable big league player. He, th- he shows flashes, though, of a extremely high ceiling. And maybe it, it's like the pop off the bat. And maybe it's because I've been watching Lorenzo Kane for too long. Well, some of the news that you said that was disappointing. You're obviously talking about Hunter Renfro. Now, Hunter Redfro going on the 10-day IL injured list here with that hamstring. I didn't think the news sounded very good. No, he had said, I, I read this tweet from Kurt Hogg of the Journal Sentinel. He had said after he got hurt, he did not know if it would be a few days or a few weeks. And normally, I've, I've learned when a baseball player says that, it's usually a three weeks. So they're saying that his MRI came back for a low-grade right hamstring strain. He'll likely miss 10 to 14 days, according to Craig Council, but then they kind of left the door open. 
I don't know. I'm kind of with you. I feel like, yeah, the Brewers and Craig Council might say 10 to 14 days. I feel like it's probably going to be closer to three weeks as well. And that's so disappointing if you're a Milwaukee Brewers fan and Hunter Renfro because he was arguably having his best start to a season, arguably on pace to have his best career season if he continued to do what he was doing. And he was playing decently well for the Milwaukee Brewers in the outfield defensively and, of course, with that cannon for an arm. He was kind of solidifying the the Milwaukee Brewers' right field, and if anyone had any questions about Avisel Garcia leaving, I mean, he kind of shut those questions down in the first month of the season. I mean, and the garbage into gold aspect of it, where Jackie Bradley gets traded, and here you go. Here's a player. But now, yes, they will be without Hunter Renfro for most likely at least the next two weeks, according to Craig Council. But... There is some more interesting things that the Milwaukee Brewers did last night. Now, we were talking about Corbin Burns going six strong innings, basically giving up one run where it took like a couple bloop shots to score the Jake Cronenworth single. They went seventh inning, Hobie Milner, eighth inning, Trevor Gott, ninth inning, Devin Williams. Now, Brad Boxberger, the last year plus, has been the seventh inning guy, and he's been pretty dang good. Uh, this season for the Milwaukee Brewers, he's also been pretty solid outside of his last couple appearances. This is one thing that, uh, Ben, I think we wanted to touch on later in the show, talking about the Milwaukee Brewers and now the back end of the bullpen since Josh Hader is going to be gone for an unknown amount of time with his wife's complications in pregnancy. Right, and I we knew the shift down of Devin Williams to the ninth. We talked about him. Got that to was the, the obvious one. Yes, got to the eighth is what's interesting to me. And this is just from what I, because I write a week, week in review piece every Sunday night looking back at the week. And whenever I'm following the team throughout the week and then go back through it on Sunday night, during those first couple weeks of the year, when Devin Williams would struggle or whatever pitcher would struggle, maybe it was the sixth inning, maybe it was the eighth. There wasn't a set time. Trevor Gott, I feel like, was always the garbage man. They would throw Trevor Gott in there to clean up other people's messes, and it really worked well. So I think, I and it's not a name that you would think would just go be thrown in in the eighth inning with where they're at, but I like it. And, and it didn't really surprise me because... While high leverage, one would mean the ninth inning, obviously a very high leverage place, but it also could mean when you're in the sixth inning and there are two runners on and you need a couple outs. And that's the role that, that we've seen got play for the first couple weeks and month of the year. So I, I like him shifting down to eight. And I mean, I, I guess you're, you're kind of just scraping by by the skin of your teeth right now. You want to survive this road trip and these games with the lack of depth you have in the bullpen with all the guys on offense that are out. So the fact you get a win last night with a, the offense did enough. The pitching was good and the bullpen was shut down. I mean, what did we say yesterday in total? You look at the 11 games, they lost game one heading into last night. We said what a five and six road trip would be totally okay. Given the situation, yeah, if they can go around 500, six and five, five and six. I think anyone would take it. And especially just because historically the Milwaukee Brewers have not played very well on the West coast. We'll check off those first two late eight forty first pitches on the West coast. We can now all stay up and watch the rest of these games, but we'll get into that late inning reliever role. Let's go to the phones here real quick. 608-321-1670. Who do I got on line one? Rowdy, this is 
This is DW from New Glarus. Hey, DW, how are you doing this morning? What's going on, man? Good, good. good. Hey, uh, question for you. I mean, I know with uh, Renfro, Renfro growing down, it's time for a way for uh, Volcano step up and get in the uh, 250 zone, don't you think? I mean, that's I mean, a he's going to have to rise sharply from where he's at now. He's sitting, yeah. he was 0 for 3 last night with a strikeout. He's sitting 186 yeah. with a 468 OPS. I can't I mean, even, I, I can't even expect him to break 200 at this point. And I, you know, I really, really like Volcano, but I think his bat slowed down this year or something because he's still hitting the ball, but he's just not hitting that for. And he's an authority, and, uh, I mean, also Tyrone Taylor, I think if you get him uh, consistent playing time, um, he's going to, I think he's a superstar in waiting, to tell you the truth. All right. See, I think Ben said that Tyrone Taylor kind of passed the eye test, and I agree with him. He's passed the eye test for me since, like, last summer. I think it's almost just because... Just how he holds his hands, he's got, like, the really quick hands, how he gets to the baseball. And also, right. he's kind of got that athletic look to him, right? He's kind of a little bit taller, a little leaner, looks quicker out there. Like you said, Lorenzo Kane, we can all just tell, is slowing down a little bit. And at yeah. this point, I just think he's a better option. And, and defensively, if you're not going to get another Jackie Bradley Jr. or Lorenzo Kane gold glove type guy... He's about right. as good as it gets that they have on the roster, a guy that's average on defense. Yeah, I know. Uh, you don't really want to cut low Kane, but, I mean, you're getting $18, 20000000 million a year this year, and he's got to gotta keep him around. I mean, he's good morale booster, and um, I think uh, another thing is his uh, defense, like you said, is top-notch. I mean, you can always use him for defensive, you know, late-inning defense replacement. I don't know. I'm at the point right now where even when Renfro returns from IL, I want Tyrone Taylor in the lineup every night. Yeah, I agree with you. I really do. I think if, like I say, you get the, I don't know what you do with Kane. Do you cut him? You You can't cut him just because he's making so much money. I think he's making about $17 million this year, and that's the second highest paid player on the team behind, obviously, Christian Yelich. You can't cut him. You just got to yeah. hope that he can start doing something. And then if you do go with Tyrone Taylor, he becomes like your ultimate defensive uh, replacement out there in the outfield. And obviously right. it's a little bit of insurance in case you have another injury to the outfield. But yeah, right. I, I don't think you can straight up cut him. And I will say we were talking to Andrew Wagner on the Bill Michaels show a couple days ago, and he is a very valuable locker room guy. He's been there, done that. He's loved in the locker room. So it's not someone you're just going to get off the roster, get rid of, but maybe limiting at bats, definitely. Hey, I got one other question for you guys. How is that Renfro for uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. trade doing? What's Jackie hitting the buck 50 again this year? Well, so I actually looked this up. The other day, Jackie Bradley Jr. was hitting a little over 200. So technically, he plays better, slightly better defense than Lorenzo Cain, and he's hitting about 20 points higher. So he's been a little bit better than Lorenzo Cain this year. He's been okay. I will say there's something weird in the in the water up in Boston because he plays well whenever he's on the Red Sox or at least okay. And then we saw him drop off the face of the earth in Milwaukee. All right. All right, Ben and Rowdy, you guys have a good day. Love the show. You too, man. Appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, that Hunter Renfro deal, when you look at it, Ben, I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier in the week, but what David Stearns got 
was Hunter Renfro for less than $8 million a year with another year of arbitration next season while Jackie Bradley Jr. was commanding, what, low teens for a salary? And then all you had to do was part ways with two middle-of-the-road prospects that they really didn't have defensive positions carved out for them. One guy was kind of like a tweener. Is he a first baseman, a third baseman? Is he probably going to be a DH? He was, I believe, only one one full year after being drafted, so it wasn't like it was a huge, he's a huge top five prospect. And then the other guy, if I remember correctly, they weren't exactly sure where he would stick at the big league level defensively. So you gave up two, I, I don't know, decent prospects, but no one that had concrete like plans for the Major League Baseball anytime soon. And you brought in Hunter Renfro, who has been your best outfielder so far until he got hurt. And Jackie Bradley Jr., you got you basically got to get rid of that terrible contract. But moving forward for the Milwaukee Brewers, do we kind of have an answer, or can we see what they are kind of thinking moving forward? Well, we saw it last night, and honestly, I like it a lot. So Josh Hader is insanely dominant, and he's going to hopefully be back soon. We don't know when. Maybe after the Cardinals series, maybe during the upcoming four game set there. But Devin Williams moved to the closer role. We know that. That was the given. Yeah. Trevor Gott was used last night in the eighth inning. And I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say today that's what I think they should do. When you look across the team and I where they've been used throughout the year has been relying on a couple different things, but the numbers I think are undeniable at this point. He's pitched in seventeen games. His strikeout per nine is third on the team behind Hayter and Williams out of the bullpen. That is uh, it's better than Milner. It's better than Boxberger. Uh, his, his ERA is 2.25, but what we've seen so far, his FIP or FIP is 2.31. So it's one that, that his ERA is reflective of how he's pitching right now. If you will, Devin Williams, on the other hand, like you mentioned 3.71 ERA, a lot of his struggles have come from walks. He's walked 11 guys in 19 innings far too much for a reliever but his FIP FIP is down at 1.36 so although his ERA is up in 3.7 you expect it to regress down closer to where that number is so expect more positive stuff coming from him in the future uh, like all of all of Trevor Gott's numbers when you look across the board are clearly third best on the uh, in the bullpen aside from Hader and Williams. So I love him moving to the eighth. And then you go Boxberger and got next to him uh, Suter as you know your long relief, longer relief guy. And then you figure it out from there. So I actually figured that they would just do the straightforward thing, and that would be move Devin Williams to closer. That's predictable and then have the Brad Boxbergers of the world move into the eighth inning role just because he had been in that seventh inning role. Now Trevor got has been throwing the ball better so far this season than Brad Boxberger, not saying Brad Boxberger has thrown the ball bad at all. He's been pretty solid as well outside of his last couple outings. But I think the really interesting thing for Trevor got is the fact that David Stearns has been known since he became the GM of the Milwaukee Brewers to find some of these guys that maybe they had been pretty good, uh, pretty good veterans in the past and have fallen on hard times and or were like those fringe quadruple A players that were back and forth between triple A and Major League Baseball and never really cut out a role and turn them around and all of a sudden they're pretty serviceable players. Trevor Gott's the real interesting one. So... If you go way back to before the lockout, 
Trevor Gott and Hunter Renfro were some of the last real moves that the Brewers made before the lockout was lifted. Trevor Gott, nothing really special, right? And didn't move the needle in anyone else's mind. It was a move where you were signing a, a guy that was in his late 20s, relief pitcher. He's seen parts of seven season in the major leagues, but really only played a majority of the season twice at the major league level. Pretty much that triple A uh, big league player back and forth quadruple A guy. I think the craziest thing about that is the fact that the Milwaukee Brewers, David Stearns, will even throw in Corbin Burns and, and Eric Lauer at the they're known for that pitching lab, right? They have that little fab lab, that pitching lab, and that they can go and work with these guys and turn them into much better products of what they were. This has absolutely nothing to do with that. Trevor Gott has come in here and thrown the ball extremely well where he was locked out of facilities due to the lockout. Then all of a sudden had a shortened spring training where he obviously pitched pretty well and made the team and now has been throwing the ball even better in the regular season. This is all on Trevor Gott. You can you can use the pitching lab for some of the other guys, but this is all on Trevor Gott. He's come out of nowhere and arguably has been the second best reliever out of the pen behind Hader. If you look at purely the numbers. I want to ask you, There, there's a number that adjusts a, a pitcher's ERA to the ballpark he plays in meaning we're not going to completely screw the pitchers that pitch in really hitter-friendly parks. Where do you think he ranks entire pitching staff wide in this number, including the starters? I'm going to go with... Mm, now, there is a caveat. Josh Hader has not pitched enough innings, I believe, to qualify. Okay, so I was going to go, he's obviously behind Hader. Everyone's behind Hader. Yes. Everyone in the entire league is behind Hader. Um so, yeah, behind Hader, and then I was going to go with probably just Corbin Burns. He is behind Corbin Burns and Eric Lauer. That's it. He's ahead of Williams. He's ahead of Woodruff. He's ahead of Freddie Peralta. He's ahead of Hobie Milliner. So, yeah, he, he's been the, the third best arm in the pen. So eighth inning for him makes sense. They could, in theory, use him in high leverage spots if something arises in the sixth or seventh. That's what we saw early in the year. Whenever a mess was made by another reliever or by a starter, it was got coming in to clean it up. Uh, I think they'll do more traditional eighth inning. I think they should be in an okay spot. I'm more concerned about what the offense does without Renfro and without Adamas and with all the guys that have been either a inconsistent or B hurt. Well, Trevor got, he's a guy that kind of can run it up there into the mid nineties. He brings a little bit of velocity out of the pen that some of the other guys like the Hobie Milners of the world or the Brent Sudas of the world really don't have. But I think another thing is, I don't know because I can't tell you that I have the Bible on Trevor Gott and know everything about him. Again, what I've basically seen this year is what I know out of Trevor Gott other than going back into his baseball reference. But again, he's a guy that he really has only seen parts of seasons for seven years in the big league level, only stayed at the big league level the majority of the time twice. But when you look at him throwing the ball, he does almost have like that whipping motion. Like he gets a lot of movement and velocity off of like that arm whip. And I, I don't know for what I'm, I'm impressed with Trevor got just himself. Yeah. You got to give David Stern some credit because he's the guy that found him once again and add him to the list of and a long list of names of guys that he's found that are producing at a high level. But I think it's pretty safe to say with Josh Hader now having to go on this leave from the team 
Devin Williams not necessarily being a hundred percent Devin Williams to the fact that like, he is walking people. He has been pretty erratic and, and hasn't been super, super dependable like he has in the past and Boxberger being solid. But we know that Boxberger is not a guy that he's like a solid seventh inning guy. When he's in a pinch, I just figured they'd throw him in the eighth inning. He's a solid reliever. He's not going to come in and wipe you out. Trevor got has the stuff where he, he's been wiping people out. Yeah. Yeah, it's been impressive. I think they're they're in an okay spot. It's got to hit the ball. But that's another thing. The bullpen hasn't even necessarily been 100% healthy this whole year. Devin Williams hasn't been right. Josh Hader now on leave from the team. You have um, Cousins, Jake Cousins, who's been gone and down for a while. He was a big part of that bullpen last year. Well, JC Mejia got suspended, but he well, also he's trash. has the highest ERA I've ever seen. He's terrible. But I believe, if I remember correctly, I think Gustave spent He's spent on the IL little, yeah. right now. He spent some time being injured, but those were all guys that brought something to this team and to that bullpen last year. You haven't had them healthy. The Brewers can continue to plug away, win games, win series, and the the bullpen has been relatively middle of the road without anyone or without them being 100% healthy this year. Kind of the whole story with the team. And they, well, they DFA'd Luis or, or Jose Arena, who, I mean, I've watched for I don't way think too anyone many misses years. Them. He, is a, he is a tough pitcher to root for. He, he's a tough guy to get behind being good, I guess is a fair way to put it. Yeah, I don't think anyone's missing Urena. I mean, not anybody. Uh, also noted uh, star on the team, Mike Barrasso, still sitting with a zero ERA. <laughs> Hey, some would argue that that's the best thing he's done all year. Pitch. Well, he also, I mean, he had a bomb I know. last night. I'm, I'm kind of crapping on him right after he hit the tying home run. But that doesn't make up for all the errors. But for speaking of errors, it wasn't given an error, but that was some hometown scoring in my opinion. Colton Wong had another, it was considered a base hit, but he had another one where he clearly could have squared that ball up around second base tried to backhand it up the wrist up the arm what is wrong with Colton Wong I I thought at the beginning of the year it was a no doubter they'd pick up his option for next year but when you're a gold glove player and you're leading the team in errors and continuously in the first two months playing pretty garbage defense I don't have any explanations for it I don't know it's almost like he I know sometimes when you look and watch him play, he looks like he almost goes about it pretty nonchalantly. I would say the same exact thing last year, but he made all the plays. This year, he's not making all the plays. It's the wide receivers and tight end position for the Green Bay Packers. Which one are you more confident in right now heading into the season? Now, we're not going to go with, are the, are the Green Bay Packers going to find a veteran wide receiver? We're talking right now, as is as the rest roster is constructed. Are you more confident in the Green Bay Packers wide receiver core or the tight ends? Heading into this year, I'm going to say tight ends. And a lot is obviously made about the wide receivers. I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but to start... We've seen that it takes time with Aaron Rodgers and rookie wide receivers to get on the same page and to produce. It happened with Devontae. It happens with pretty much everybody. So when I look at a core with 
Maybe Christian Watson as your one, if he really pans out and is great. Alan Lazard, who is good by by all means, but by but by no means is a a game breaker or will go say win you games, win you one on one battles. He's a solid receiver and he has a rapport with Rodgers, but I'm not he's not that guy. He's not gonna fill in and be the Devontae. Randall Cobb can't stay healthy and he's old. Sammy Watkins, I think Yes, the talent is undeniable coming out of Clemson, but there's a reason he's been on, what, five teams now in four years. The health has been a factor, hasn't produced really. And then you go down the rest of it. The rest are young guys that aren't proven at all. If Amari Rogers can step in and be good, that's great. But his ceiling is a, a little bit worse Randall Cobb. You know, so when I look across the the wide receiving core, nothing stands out that really makes me excited. And yes, Rogers will still produce and he'll be good. But when I talk about out of those position cores, which am I most excited about and confident in? It's tight ends. And Robert Tunyon, probably not going to be back week one, but early in the season, I would assume he tore his ACL. What week four, week five last year, he should be able to be back to full strength early in the season. If it's not week one, this is a guy that a couple years ago played all 16 games, had 586 yards, 11 touchdowns. He was lethal in the red zone and he was a matchup problem that really helped the Packers out really good also at run blocking. So when he is back as the one, I think that's a one of the most solidified positions on the offense. You go behind him and yes, Mercedes Lewis had the fumble in the playoffs, but you know what he's going to bring. He's consistent. I don't know how the hell he's still playing, but he's a really consistent guy. And then behind him, there might even be a little bit upside. Josiah DeGuara, disappointing drop in the playoff game. But you hear a lot about his athleticism. Maybe he becomes something. If not, he's a good blocking guy. He's a gadget guy that can help you out. I think the the upside of the tight end position and the how solid it will be, I guess, with Robert Tunyon there back healthy as the number one. I think there are a lot fewer question marks there because wide receivers, Christian Watson, massive question mark. We don't know if he can catch. We don't know what he's going to be. The The upside is there, but we'll see. Lazard, you know what you're getting, but can Randall Cobb stay healthy? What will Sammy Watkins bring, if anything? And then behind him, will any young guys really step up and make their name? So I, I go tight end here. Ben, we've actually, weirdly enough, agreed on a lot of things, wouldn't you say, so far in these first three days where we've on air together. Yeah. Mo- most of the things we agree on. Absolutely disagree with you on this one. I'm looking at the wide receiver room. I'm looking at the tight end room. I have less confidence in the tight ends. And and this is why I'll start by explaining why I have more confidence in the wide receivers. I know what Randall Cobb is. Randall Cobb is going to be the guy that mentors the Samari two rays of the world. The Amari Rogers of the world. Hopefully he can stay healthy. I I will say about Randall Cobb, I wasn't the biggest fan when they traded for him. I was kind of like, meh, whatever, not a needle mover. He showed me last season that when healthy, he's got just a little bit of juice left in him, more than what I actually thought he had in him. Now, the big question is, can he stay healthy? Dude hasn't hardly stayed healthy at all since he was back in a Packers uniform the first time. But you know what you're getting in Cobb. You're getting a guy that, when healthy, is a, is a decent slot receiver, has great chemistry with Aaron Rodgers. Alan Lazard is another one of the big targets at receiver. 
He's a guy that in the last two seasons has really grown in a relationship with Aaron Rodgers. The chemistry has gotten so much better. He's a guy that I think with this type of receiving core is going to be one that takes a bigger step forward. Now, you mentioned Sammy Watkins. There's never really ever been doubts of Sammy Watkins and the ability. He's always been a great athlete. He's always been a solid receiver. His biggest thing is mentally upstairs and physically on the field. Can he stay healthy? Now, if he stays healthy, you have, at the worst, a pretty solid number three receiver. And then again, we talked about Amari Rodgers a little bit the last couple weeks. He's growing. They say he's in the best shape of his life. He kind of is what he is. I think at this point, he's still just basically a slot receiver. You then have Malik Taylor and Jawan Winfrey, who I don't think that they are going to basically do anything. I think those are guys that are essentially number six receivers on pretty much every single NFL team and or practice squad. I don't think that changes. Samari Toure, he's a guy that I think maybe he sneaks into that sixth spot. Maybe he's a practice squad slot. I'm not expecting anything from Danny Davis. But then you get to the rookie wide receivers. We talk about how Christian Watson has all the attributes, right? He's got the size. He's got the speed. He's got the strength. Can he catch the football? We have videos being leaked out that he dropped a nice little easy pass. All right, I get that. It is week one. We've seen other guys have issues with drops, no doubt. But the one guy that I feel like people are kind of sleeping on a little bit is Romeo Dubs. And the reason why Romeo Dubs is one of the guys that I actually really liked coming out for the Packers to grab in, in those middle rounds. And the reason why is Romeo Dubs, when he was at Nevada, had multiple thousand yards receiving seasons. He was a guy that showed he had good hands, a guy that showed he could go deep, run a lot of different routes, had a, had a decent route tree, and he's athletic. Now, he had a guy in Carson Strong who isn't necessarily seen as an NFL quarterback where he's going to step in and play every day. He's a project But one of the big things against Carson Strong was his legs and lower body and if he could hold up in the NFL. No one ever doubted Carson Strong throwing the football. Carson Strong had one of the stronger arms in that draft. He, When he was healthy, he got Romeo Dubs the football. Romeo Dubs was a good receiver. Now, was he playing Mountain West competition? Yes, but he was pretty good. Now, I'm not expecting Romeo Dubs to come in here and look like Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, but I feel like if Aaron Rodgers and him get on the same page and he really is and shows kind of the ability that he did at Nevada, I wouldn't be surprised if he caught 30, 40 balls and had some big time plays. And that's not even talking about the upside of Christian Watson. We all know there's upside there. I think there's just a lot of upside with Romeo dubs that really no one's talking about. Now, the reason why I feel more comfortable after also going to say that the wide receiver, uh, the wide receiver room right now in my mind is bottom seven in the NFL but I think there's room to grow. There's there's room for if guys can stay healthy, what some of the rookies can become and bring to the team. But the reason why I'm so, so, so down on the tight ends is because it's the exact same room from last year. Outside of, of uh, Bobby Tunyon, had anybody on this tight end uh, core or room impressed you at all? 
I mean, not really, but Tunyon has. That's the point. I mean, when you mentioned they didn't do anything in the room from last year, you're getting Tunyon back, which is a massive upgrade. He missed most of last year. I would argue the wide receiving core from last year got worse. Yeah, but here's the thing with the tight ends. You have an aging Mercedes Lewis who back in his day with the Jacksonville Jaguars, great player, great receiving tight end. He was the guy that knowing he was getting older, completely changed his game. And you got to respect a guy like that because he's just a, a grizzled vet that is staying in the league, doing anything he can. Now he's a blocking tight end. We know he's the blocking tight end, but he's another year older. You have Josiah DeGuara that outside of a game or two here and there, his rookie year really hasn't shown you much. More people forget about his couple games before he tore his, his knee up rookie year. than they do remembering the fact that he dropped the huge ball in the play playoffs. You look at Dominic Daphne. He's a guy that's basically been your fourth or practice squad tight end his entire career. Tyler Davis, same exact thing. He was in Buffalo, I believe, for a second cup of coffee. But again, Dominic Davis, Tyler, or Dominic Daphne and Tyler Davis, those are two guys that are literally your fourth tight ends or practice squad guys. Josiah DeGuara looks like he's been trending closer to your third, fourth type tight end. Mercedes Lewis is what he is. He's an older tight end that is now specifically a blocking tight end that'll catch a ball here or there. Bobby Tunyon is the guy that's going to have to move the needle at tight end. He is coming off of an ACL injury. He suffered that in what? Right around Halloween time, late October, early November. I don't expect to have him back at the beginning of the season. We've seen Packers, and we know following the Green Bay Packers that their medical staff is very conservative when it comes to allowing players to get back early. They they probably would have been a team to hold out Adrian Peterson when he was good to go seven months after an ACL when he ran for 2,000 yards. They would have been a team that said, nah, AP, I think, uh, I think you can wait a couple months. We've seen that from them. I don't necessarily think... Tunyon's going to be ready day one. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't get Tunyon back on the field by November. And if if you have Bobby Tunyon back on the field in November, that means you're playing two full months with Mercedes Lewis, Josiah DeGuara, Dominic Daphne, and Tyler Davis. Yeah, we can talk about ceilings and everything for the wide receivers. There ain't no ceiling at tight end outside of Bobby Tunyon, who's coming off of an ACL injury. And I would argue that where Bobby Tunyon is currently at his career, this is a guy that he was a guy brought in by the Packers by Ted Thompson. He's 28 years old. He's been in the league five plus seasons. This isn't a guy where I see much ceiling left. I think he's a good player. Don't get me wrong. I don't know if there's much more that Bobby Tunyon can do to become a better player. He's never going to sniff the old Rob Gronkowski's of the world, the Travis Kelsey's of the world, some of those top tight ends. He's a solid tight end when he's healthy, but he's continuing to get older, coming off of a knee injury. He's getting closer to that age 30. I just don't see really any ceiling whatsoever at the tight end position. But you can argue that wide receiver. Cobb and Watkins, there's a little bit more of juice to be squeezed out of those two. Alan Lazard, I think he's got a little bit more ceiling to grow into. You would also argue that Amari Rogers, Samari Toure, Romeo Dubs, and Watson all have ceiling because you don't know what they have right now. You know what you have in the tight end position, and it's not great. If I think the wide receiver position is currently bottom seven, 
with this current tight end position as is where t- we'll say Tunyon doesn't start the season. I think you could argue that's a bottom five tight end position. Going into the 2021 season after 2020, uh, the argument was made. Robert Tunyon was a middle of the road towards the top 10 tight ends in the league in 2020 when he had his good year and he was fully healthy. Aaron Rodgers had a passer rating of 148.3 looking at him. That mark led all it, it led every tight end. He is he is the matchup nightmare when on play action or in every, any other situation he can sneak out and go. Uh, he did tear his ACL in week eight, but he is reportedly, they said he is ahead of schedule, which makes me think uh, sometime towards week four, week five. Well, the one thing maybe, that maybe week six Tunyon does have going for him is wasn't it strictly just the ACL? It wasn't the MCL. It wasn't the meniscus. It wasn't anything else in there that needed to be cleaned out. It was strictly a tear of the ACL. Correct. Uh, yeah, that's my understanding as well. But if, if you talk about the wide receiver room as bottom seven, and I, I mean, there's no way the tight end room is worse than that. I, and I don't think you could go into a season and realistically expect Aaron Rodgers to uh, suddenly make every rookie wide receiver who comes in the door. Great. Because it just hasn't happened. It, it hasn't happened throughout his career. And you mentioned, I say the final juice, if you will, out of Randall Cobb and Sammy Watkins. If you have to rely on Randall Cobb to be your second best or third best receiver on this team, then you're in a tough spot. Because you you mentioned how like you go deep in the tight end room, it doesn't look good. But that's a, you could say that about any team in the NFL. You normally only have one, maybe two tight ends on the field. Two when you get more into the the bigger packages, red zone situations. When you talk about wide receivers, two to three, uh, and these days you're you're running three guys out there more often than not. So a a room of Christian Watson, who I don't know, and Aaron Rodgers doesn't do great with rookies. Alan Lazard, who I, I, we agree. I like Alan Lazard. He's fine. But I, the ideal world is he's your three. Maybe he could play into your two. Randall Cobb should not be relied on to do anything because he's old. He's inconsistent. He He's injury prone. And I mean, I am low as ever on Sammy Watkins. They signed him to a $1.85 million deal. Like there's a reason he didn't get any more money. It's because he hasn't been healthy and the production has been bad. There's a reason that he is not able to stick on a team. He's been in the league for like seven years. He's been on five or six teams already. So see, I got two for you. One at for the tight end position versus receiver. I think for where we're at right now to the start of the season, the green Bay Packers are much more likely to go find a veteran wide receiver than do anything with the tight end position. Who would they find a wide receiver? I'm saying there's options out there. Who? You have, but all the options. My point is, they're still out there for a reason. If they go sign Julio Jones, you cannot expect to come in and immediately every fix single that year room. after June first, you get some quality veterans, whether they're receivers or other positions that get cut. I, if the Packers want to go get one of these guys, they can go get them. I'm saying with the tight end position, this is the room. I don't think they go grab anybody, but they could go find a tight end too. To your point. I just don't see that. But they don't need to go get one because Robert Tunyon showed when he was healthy and all reports are that he should be able to come back to full strength. When he was healthy, he generated the Rogers storming to him was the highest passer rating when targeting a tight end. He has showed a he's one of the only guys on the entire passing offense that is returning that has a rapport with Aaron Rodgers. And that's significant because when you look at the grand scheme of this offense, a lot of unproven guys, a lot of new faces. Uh, and if you say that the the tight end room has gotten worse from last year, I would say it's improving. 
because Tunyon comes back. The wide receiver room, on the other hand, got worse, undoubtedly. All right, let's go to the phone. 608-321-1670. Line one, who do I got? Hey, Nelson, this is Bill. Hey, Bill, how's it going? What up, Bill? I'll tell you what. I, I, uh, I, I, I hear everybody complaining about wide receivers and tight ends and I just, every time I hear it, it makes me laugh because what do people expect when you've got, what, $50 million into Rodgers, $25 million into Bakhtiari, and how much into, uh, uh, what's his name, the running back again, 12, 15? Yeah, Aaron Jones is actually, Jones, thank you. He, he really, this season it's only uh, $6 million roughly, but uh, yeah, next year, $20 million. Right now, Aaron Rodgers' cap number is 28.5, Bakhtiari is 13.4, and then you got a couple defensive guys before you go down, Aaron Jones's cap number this year is five point nine million. Um, the tight end position, I Tunyon is two point four, and they're really not paying any receivers. Randall Cobb four point one, Lazard four million. But I mean, what do you you know you know their cap number and what they're actually paying them are two different things, right? Yes, but the one that really affects what you can do to the rosters, the cap number. I understand. Oh, I understand that. I understand that. I but. You know, but they still have to look at, okay, our payroll is this much this year. It may not, you know, some of it may be, you know, it may not go towards the cap number for three, four years, but they're still paying X amount of dollars. Yeah, but I, with football teams, hey, if there was no salary cap, they could pay infinite dollars. You see how much money that league brings in. It's really about what does it hinder your salary cap? Because that's the only thing keeping you from paying crazy money to everybody. I under I understand exactly how it goes, and I understand it. Oh, Bill! I just no. You cut I out just, there for a second. Cut out for a second. Okay, I I understand how how that all works. I just I just don't know what they can do to go. You know, I feel like if you're paying your quarterback fifty million dollars, he better take some three to five million dollar receivers and make them look like fifteen million dollar receivers. I mean, that's the hope. I well. I don't really know what else can be said until we get into the season because, I mean, yeah, Rodgers is making a lot of money. But also, I, I feel like the reason the room isn't as talented as it possibly could be is not only because of Rodgers. One is obviously the Adams situation. He wanted to go no matter how much they would have paid him. But then yep. you look at some of the money the wide receivers got on the free market. Christian Kirk got, what, $71 million, Rowdy? Like there were the That's money, ridiculous. The money pawned out to wide receivers this offseason was stupid. The Jacksonville Jaguars bill single-handedly put a damper on the entire wide receiver market because they threw ungodly amounts of money to very pedestrian receivers. Well, what did the Chiefs do with uh, Velda Scanlon? I mean, that was a stupid amount to pay for that guy. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I mean, 30 catches for, what, over $10 million a year? Right. Well, what I'm saying is I can't, I can't look at what Rogers is making and say, that's the reason they didn't get any more receivers. The market was just stupid this year. I understand. And you know, another thing before I let you guys go is remember last year at this time, Bakhtiari was, uh, things were, I had a schedule for his knee too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that makes sense. He did tear it in what? New year's Eve. Yeah, it was new year's Eve. It was right before when we were getting ready to watch the Packers. It was like, I think it was the night before. And then all of a sudden you get the, you're at your new year's Eve party and you're like notification, David Bakhtiari done for the year, torn ACL, put a damper on new year's Eve. So that's a couple of months later, but you're right. I mean, there is, I will see. I, there are no sweeping conclusions that can be made about when Tunyon comes back. Hey guys, 
you know, you always talk about the nut kick continuum. Yep. That was the nut kick continuum that New Year's Eve of 2020 when we when we found out Bakhtiari was out. A hundred percent agree. I was at a, a buddy's house and there was like three or four of us sitting around the table having some drinks. Everyone got the notification pretty much at the same time. Everybody looked at each other and said, God dang it. And all of a sudden it was like, all right, our playoff chances are over. <laughs> uh, what do you do, right? Well, right, I'll hey, leave guys. you with this caveat. I know I know that um, you're not too big and maybe Bob Tunyon coming back, but to make oh. Ben feel better, we've saved a lot of money in the receiving room, and Randall Cobb is the highest paid at $4.1 million. Oh, You know <laughs> what? I, I'm, I want Bob Tunyon to come back. I think he's a good receiver, and I, I'm just calling because I believe if you pay Aaron Rodgers what you're paying Aaron Rodgers, he better take that $4 million receiver and make him play like a $15 million receiver. That's a very good point, and I mean, you're right. Uh, with what he has, he has to make it work. Yeah, he needs to win. It's at a point where you can't just put up crazy numbers in the regular season and then get to the playoffs and not be able to produce. So you're right. I mean, it's it, there, there are no excuses at this point, right? The situation was kind of of Rodgers' own making, some of it out of his control with Adams, but he's got to get it done. The poll at Ben Z. Kenny on Twitter. Which coach is the most generic at the podium? Matt LaFleur, Mike Budenholzer, Craig Council, or Paul Christ? And right now, 50 votes in. Paul Christ is taking a runaway dominant victory. 80% have voted for him. And Nelson, I, I pulled up the clip. I think this is the perfect example of the genericness of Paul Christ. While the thing is, I think it's hilarious and I love it because no other coach will say something like this. Some view it as extremely generic. I think this is in the middle of last season, a midweek press conference. Well, the great thing about being part of a team is it's made up of a bunch of individuals, right? You know, I, I don't agree with, you know, there's no I in team. I think the I is the best part of the team. You know, it's a, a team is cool. Cause it's made up of all sorts of individuals, but the, the, there is a, something greater than yourself, and that is the team. Well, the great thing about being part of a team. I, yeah, that is, I mean, I, I don't think anybody else could have a quote like that. So I, I think I might argue that Paul Christ is not the most generic or close to because nobody else will go up and do something like that. All of my LaFleur clips are just, yeah, you know, looking forward to the opportunity. Uh, you know, we really got to focus on our process heading into the week. I really liked what he's done. He, he's really been good. Shows up at practice. I, I would argue LaFleur is the most generic because that's what every coach ever says. Nobody, nobody in the country is like Paul Christ. But I do have a good comment here from Evan. He said, you could play a Paul Christ post game, not know if they won or lost or what year it was from. And that very, very good point. See, I actually thought that this was kind of an easier poll to vote in. When you look at it on the surface, I think you instantly think of Paul Christ and you instantly think of Matt LaFleur. Paul Christ is just kind of like the word salad guy where he's just kind of all over saying something, but really not saying anything. LaFleur is just Mr. Cliché. Like everything he says is a cliche. And for the most part, he's more upbeat and positive. And then you have Budenholzer who sounds sleepy to me. And then you have Craig council where I think Craig council can be over all over the board. Like sometimes he'll give you the 
pretty basic, hey, Freddie Peralta has a significant injury, and then other times he'll actually give you a, a decent quote. I thought I narrowed it down right away to both football coaches, and I'm kind of like you on this one. I ended up voting Matt LaFleur, though, because I find Paul Chris comments to be kind of comical where I just chuckle at them. I more or less roll my eyes at Matt LaFleur press conferences just because it's like, well, of course you're going to say that. Now, I'm also somebody in my writing days for years covering Wisconsin football when you have to transcribe a Paul Chris press conference, it is one of the most maddening experiences ever because you have the question, you have the beginning of a comment, you have an extended long, long anecdote before it then returns to not actually answer the question. And when you try to form it into sentences, it is wildly confusing taking out all the ums and, and all that stuff. So yeah, I, as someone who has uh, not been a fan of Paul Chris pressers, just cause I had to transcribe them. I'm voting LaFleur here. He's short, concise, cliche. It's everything you look for in a generic coach speak at the podium. And if you so if you remember going back to when Matt LaFleur first became the Packers head coach, I remember this takeaway that a lot of people had where it was like, Ugh. and it's kind of like your Eagles coach, Ben. The first press conference or two weren't the greatest. And it's like, okay. Okay, LaFleur, you're coming in here. We're going to get the PR team with you. We're going to work on what you're going to say at the podium. And it's like the Green Bay Packers as an organization just basically brought him in for like a two-week seminar on how to talk and be just basic as all hell on the podium. Because after those first couple ones, you're like, eh, it's a little shaky. It's literally the same guy every single time. Well, Sirianni was bad. <laughs> Sirianni was worse than Matt LaFleur, but... That's kind of the gist of what I was saying. His first few weren't as good as what he is now. Like now it's he's like a robot. He gives you the basic answer, the generic answer, the cliche answer. Here's a great example as uh, from my radio producer perspective, because when you talk about the media, you can't spell media without me and also an I. So when I look at these things, I think, how can they benefit myself? Now, I mentioned transcribing Chris press conferences, and I mentioned not getting any good audio drops from LaFleur's. Sirianni, while he speaks in a lot of cliches, there are a great example. He had the whole flower analogy, which was hilarious. Eventually, he realized he should stop with the weird analogies because he was getting ripped a little bit because the team wasn't winning and it was weird. But at the end of it, he's talking about flowers and he goes, it really pops out and it grows. And that is the perfect three-second drop to use in very certain situations to say, uh, continue a conversation while also uh, exert a laugh from the host and or a caller. See, that, I- is, that is what I look for. And uh, Matt LaFleur has never gotten up to the podium and says it really pops out and it grows. So, Ben, you, you and I'll say sports director Zach Halloprin, you guys see each, each other more as media, correct? Ebo uh- Me- and I really don't see ourselves as media. Like, I come on these airwaves, do the four-hour show. I'm not out there reporting. I'm not going to practice. I'm watching the games, but I'm not doing all of, like, the reporter-type work. I consider myself somewhere in the middle, where for years I was on the writing side throughout school, um, and even as I started here for the first six, seven months. So I'm definitely in the middle. I obviously don't get out to many practices because I'm in here producing. I do like, though, how you dis- how you kind of described and summed up media. It's got an M and an E. 
which it's me, and then the I for I, and you cutting up videos. Now, just as a perspective from someone that's not necessarily in the media, I think I agree with you. The media sees themselves as me and I. A lot of the everyday people see them as the D and the A, the dumb asses. Huh. All right. Well, I mean... I, I'm not going to... We can use every single letter in media, and it makes sense for all all sides here. I'm not going to argue that. I Yeah, I don't know. I will say, when when covering... Yeah, I might even throw Greg Gard into all this. Maybe he would have been a better option than Council. Uh, see, I don't think Gardo's that bad. I, I, don't th- I really don't think Gardo's that bad on the, the podium. Like, he tells you kind of what's going on. He's, he's very quiet and laid back. It's not like he's going to get in depth, but... I feel like I feel like Council and, and Guard are probably two of the better ones to get quotes from. Now again, I don't go to every single press conference. You know, I listen to some of the clips we play or some of the updates that were put together. But I feel like just in general, listening to their interviews, maybe even like on the the broadcasts, Guard and, and Council are by far the best of those, I guess, other three. In yeah. my opinion. I I agree. Maybe maybe him instead of council would have worked. Council does have a vote right now. 70 votes in. Paul Chris leading the way. 78% a runaway. I will say, when you mentioned the me in media and the I, there's a reason that my favorite time slot and the one I believe the best in college football is Big Noon Kickoff. There's nothing better than it. And everyone wants to champion their night games and all that stupid stuff. I'm a Big Noon Kickoff guy because, first of all, the television product is amazing. I love waking up early and being able to have a day after said game. And yeah, I'm not up late doing work. Do you find it a little um, interesting that they call it the big noon kickoff, even though the Big Ten, which is featured on most of them, is in the Midwest, therefore central time zone, and it's actually 11 o'clock when they kick off? No, I, no, I, I don't see. I, I don't see it weird. I mean... The East Coast, it's noon, and that's where a lot of the Fox and ESPN offices, I'm sure, are. We didn't really talk much about Mike Budenholzer. We didn't really talk much about Craig Council. I know Greg Gard was thrown in there. I really, I actually enjoy listening to Greg Gard on the podium because you actually get like an answer that makes sense and it's easy to follow. Well, he ripped Bo Borowski to shreds a couple years ago. I think that was my turning point. (laughs) But like, okay. Mike Budenholzer, he sounds sleepy sometimes. He sounds cryy sometimes. Like, I don't know really what to take, especially like I think personally a lot of the interviews that I see with Mike Budenholzer are kind of pointless. It's the sideline interviews. Those are like the interviews in NBA basketball that need to go away. They need to go away. Yeah, they're a joke. I also am not. I mean, they do something similar with baseball mainly in the in spring training but whenever they and it's mainly the national feeds that are uh, baseball is the one sport where national feeds are so infuriating to watch because all they talk about and rightfully so but it's star player this star player that let's talk about his high school days let's talk about his girlfriend when he was in middle school it, they go a little too far with it and then when they get the coach mic'd up during the game i have a problem with that uh, even though some managers Joe Girardi specifically are pretty unbearable to hear talk most times during the day. Hearing them while they're in the middle of their job, I'm not a fan of. But the basketball one, I completely agree. They're pointless. I'll go one further with a hotter take here. I think the mic'd up in baseball, not a fan of it. 
I think it's like you said, kind of over the top where it's like, really, do you really have to be doing this? At least a rod isn't on Sunday night baseball anymore. We'll go back to the phones here real quick, Ben. 608-321-1670. Line one, who do I got? What's up, boys? Paulie. Good morning, Paulie. What's happening? What up? So I got a question, right? I'm not a big fan or not fan of any of the Wisconsin coaches. I mean, they do coach stuff. But I, based on that premise, I want to ask, because I think I DM'd uh, our private, in our private conversation uh, Evo and Rowdy, do you think there's a a more overrated coach in sports, but I'll just narrow it down to the NBA, than uh, Eric Spolstra? Uh, absolutely not. I'll, I'll go the exact opposite direction. I think he is not the most underrated, but I think he's underappreciated. I overrated. Know- overrated. I, I'm saying I think he's put him on a crappy team, and I don't think he does anything. He, he, he won two championships with LeBron, uh, Wade, and Bosh. Paulie, you know what I mean. Paulie, he, he his roster right now is nowhere close to good. Twelve or seven of however many players are undrafted. He has Jimmy Butler. Oladipo's a shell of himself. Bam Adebayo's good. The rest, of, a lot of them are undrafted guys, and he is turning them into an Eastern Conference contender. They're two games away from going to the finals. And yeah, yeah, obviously, if you have LeBron, it is easier to win titles. I would argue Doc Rivers is the most overrated coach in basketball. Every single time he gets to a big moment, he chokes, and the only title he has, he was carried by three Hall of Famers. You know what? I liked him when he was with Boston. Um, he has kind of went downhill since then, so I can't say you're wrong on that. But, I mean, I, I just think Spolstra is a Pat Riley puppet, and I don't think he's that great. I just think – I hear what you're saying, but I – I don't know, man. Jimmy Butler, he's pretty good. You know what I mean? And like you said, Yeah, but look uh, at the teams he's playing against. I mean, the Celtics are a lot more talented than them. They're tied 2-2. I would say the Sixers, despite their flaws, have more talent. They beat them. Like I, The culture he has instilled there is effective. Paulie, real quick, and now we're up against the break here, but real quick, yep. better acting. Celtics flopping or Jimmy Butler in off, Christmas office party or office Christmas party, whatever movie I, that was? Uh, I honestly can't say. 